not a lot of notes. Nahum didn't write a lot, so uh, there's not a whole lot to cover, so it's pretty basic, simple. talks about Nineveh. We've already talked about Nineveh, so we'll touch on it again, but uh, we'll just go and, and see how long we're here. Uh, Father, we thank you that you uh, are a God of truth. Uh, we say that every week, but we, we want to be reminded that you are a God of truth. And uh, you have given us your truth in written form. You've provided it for us. Father, it's our desire tonight to study it, uh, to look at it, to uh, digest it. Uh, Father, to uh, make it real in our own life that we would learn. So we invite your Holy Spirit to come and teach us. Uh, as he was the author, uh, Father, would he explain your word to us? We just will give you the praise and the glory for what you're going to do and uh, for what we learn tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Nahum is where we are. Nahum is just three chapters long. Uh, <coughs> and uh, so we want to just kind of follow again the same kind of pattern that we've been following with the minor prophets. Uh, we want to talk about the man, uh, Nahum, his name means consolation uh, or consoler. Uh, you can think of that one who consoles. He is the consolation. It was a fairly common name. We really don't, we really don't have a whole lot else to go on. Um, the root word for Nahum is the same root word for Nehemiah uh, and, and many other forms of that name. Uh, and so it, it's odd in that when we have consoler, you know, most of the ones, uh, most of the prophets that we looked at, their name had some sort of connotation or connection to their prophecy. This one, not so much. <laughs> He's not consoling anybody uh, when he goes and, and preaches against Nineveh. And uh, so, uh, but that is his name nonetheless, Consolation. Uh, where he is from, all we have uh, is that in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. So as an Elkishite, he is from Elkish. The problem we have is it appears nowhere on any map. Uh, no one knows where Elkish is. Um, and I searched and searched and searched for anything that might even resemble some of the other possibilities, which is why you do not have a map in these notes that you have in all of the other notes, because he doesn't show up anywhere. Um, so we don't know. Some have thought that it was in Assyria itself, that he actually lived in Assyria. Um, I don't know that that would be uh, accurate. There is a city in Iraq or in that area just north of Nineveh called Al-Kush, which is similar to Elkish, however you want to pronounce it. Um, it's spelled differently, but pronounced the same. So some say that he may have been from up there. Um, it may also have been an earlier name for Capernaum um, because Capernaum actually means the city of Nahum, Capernaum. Uh, but again, most people don't think he is from uh, Galilee, from the northern kingdom, which is where Capernaum was. And so the best placement of the city would be about 15 miles south, southwest of Jerusalem, where there is a city called Elkaseh, 
which they're saying could very well be some form of El Kash. Um, and so they're putting him southwest of Jerusalem um, in uh, Judah. And so he, many believe he is a prophet from Judah, from the southern kingdom. And uh, when he is prophesying, he is prophesying against Nineveh. Uh, so we've hit on Nineveh a number of times through these. Uh, Jonah was at Nineveh, um, and now we see Nahum at Nineveh. The date that we have is roughly 620 to 615 B.C. So he is uh, quite a while after Jonah. Uh, Jonah's would no longer be alive. He's about 120 years after Jonah. Uh, chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, give us a little idea of, can zero in on the date a little bit. Because he tells Nineveh, he says, Are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile with water around her? The river was her defense, the waters her wall. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies, yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at every street corner. Lots were cast for her nobles and all her great men were put in chains. So we know that the city of Thebes uh, was destroyed either recently or prior to Nahum prophesying to Nineveh. And history tells us that the city of Thebes was destroyed in 661 B.C. by Assyria. Uh, Assyria marched down through or probably came around the south side because Thebes is a, a city on the Nile River, um, uh, quite a ways up the river uh, in Egypt. And so uh, the prophecy of, of the destruction of Nineveh uh, and Nineveh, we know, was destroyed in 612. So it has to be after 661, prior to 612. So they're putting it probably a few years uh, before. Nahum speaks of the destruction of Nineveh being very close. And so 620 to 615 is somewhat reasonable. So that's where they've placed him uh, in the, on the timeline. Now, the city of Nineveh, we talked about that a little bit. What did we say last week about the city of Nineveh? What were some things, what do you remember, or what do you know about Nineveh? Hundred feet high walls. They thought they were invincible. Very high walls. The wall itself was eight, or eight miles around the city, and hundred feet high. Double lane chariots, you could take two chariots uh, side by side on the wall. Um, and so very high, very fortified. Um, and so they were very secure and, and very powerful. I mean, it took a lot if you were going to go in and overthrow uh, the city of Nineveh. It was the capital of Assyria. It was also known for its water system, uh, the ways in which they got water out. Uh, there was a river that ran through Nineveh, and they were able to, I don't know about pump, but at least redirect the water to various parts of the city so that the entire city was well supplied with water. Um, and so they, they had a very, very uh, intricate uh, water system. Uh, Nineveh is the site of many archaeological digs, and so much is known about the city. Um, archaeologists have been digging up the ruins of Nineveh for years. 
And uh, among some of the findings was Ashurbanipal's. He was the, the ruler and at the time of uh, Assyria's power, one of the rulers. He was the one who overthrew Thebes. And he had a very vast library. And they have found many writings, many books, many scrolls in that library that tell them a lot about what was happening in that time period. Um, among the findings in his library was the best copy of the Babylonian creation story. Um, every culture has a story of creation. Interestingly enough, every culture also has a story of the great flood. Somewhere in their writings will be the story of creation and the story of the flood. Um, the names many times are changed. Um, the facts are twisted here or there, but they all come back to that story. So in his library was the Babylonian creation story as well as the flood story. They, they found writings on the great flood uh, that had taken place. Um, and so in, 16, in 612 B.C., uh, the Babylonians and the Medes formed a coalition and attacked the city of Nineveh in 612. Um, and with that incredibly large wall, fortified city, uh, impenetrable, had not, no one had been able to overthrow them, uh, the Babylonians either needed to have a real, and Medes either needed to have a really huge army or a sneak attack, or help. They had help. And where did the help come from? The Lord. God helped them. I mean, God's plan was to judge Nineveh. And so he actually flooded that river. And by flooding that river, it destroyed the city. And they could no longer function. It was easy then for the Medes and the, the Babylonians, the Persians, to come in. Um, if you look at Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, it says, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. Now, that's interesting because Nineveh was destroyed by a flood when the Babylonians and the Medes marched in, and Nineveh has never been rebuilt. It would not come a second time. Uh, Nineveh has never. All they have right now are the archaeological digs. Nineveh has never been rebuilt uh, on that site. And many times, you know, a city gets overthrown, another city just they build right on top of it. Um, not so with Nineveh, and it's part of what Nahum, Nahum prophesied. Trouble will not come a second time. Also in chapter 2, verse 6, he speaks of this flood. He says, the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. And so uh, God was, was judging Nineveh and destroying that city from the inside because no other army could get inside, so God destroyed it on the inside and then allowed them to come in, uh, which made it easier for them to come in. Once Nineveh fell, it was probably just uh, three, two or three short years before Babylon took over completely. Um, and that would be the, which is why we think uh, 
Nahum was probably 620 to 615. They fell in 612, and by 610, 609, Babylon was in control. They were then the world power. Um, and we know that it was Babylon then that would come in and take Judah into captivity. Uh, into captivity. Assyria took Israel, the northern kingdom. Babylon overthrew Assyria. Babylon, Persians, and Medes would be marching into Judah um, several years down, down the way. Um, so that's a little bit of the history of the city of Nineveh. Uh, to know how this prophecy worked in and was, was fulfilled and uh, kind of the, the miracle uh, of, of what God had done in order to overthrow the city. Now, the style of the book is mostly poetic. Uh, he writes very poetic. Nahum had a great sense of language. Uh, he, had a, he painted great word pictures. Um, he used words that were very descriptive. He was a great writer and, and able to paint these pictures with words and phrases and, and figures of speech. If you look at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, I mean, listen to his description. And this is of the attackers that are advancing against Nineveh. The shields of his soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes. On the day they are made ready, the spears of pine are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. He summons his picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is, it is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. Its slave girls moan like doves and beat upon their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool, and its water is draining away. You, you just kind of, the, the pictures and almost the cadence of, of how he writes, you kind of get the feeling of an army marching uh, in, and, and just the description of, of what he is, he is saying. Um, the idea that the chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth, they look like flaming torches, uh, someone has said, and I don't think correctly, but I've read it in two or three different commentaries, so you may come across it at some point, that they think Nahum, and I think this is a real stretch, one, because I don't think it matters, so I don't know that God would put it in here, that that, that uh, reference to the chariots, and that they look, they are rushing back and forth through the squares, storm through the streets, that they look like Flaming torches, they dart about like lightning, could be reference to the modern-day automobile. I throw that out because I've read it in two or three different books, and I don't have a lot of books on Nahum, but I've read it in two or three different places. I think that's a pretty good stretch. Um, like I said, one, because it doesn't really matter. Uh, Yes. Might be a little more understanding of where the, the flame torch type thing flittering and darting back and forth with the messenger chariots. That would make much more sense. Um, a couple of pictures that Nahum uh, paints for us or figures of speech that, that we want to look at. Um, 
Nineveh worshipped Ishtar, I-S-H-T-A-R. Ishtar was the goddess of love and war. Um, And that was their main deity uh, that they worshipped. Now, when we say all is fair in love and war, um, it could very well be a reference to Ishtar because she was a a goddess of love and war. Um, I would have printed a picture. I found a picture of her, um, but I did not put it in here because uh, I'd had to color in or fade out some of the because they really emphasize the love part. Um, and so it, uh, I didn't want to actually put it in print. The statue that they had of Ishtar, um, she basically was not dressed. Um, so I, I did not uh, put her before you. Uh, two images that Ishtar in this statue, she's basically standing, she's standing on top of a lion, two lions. Her, her feet are firmly planted on the backs of two lions. And uh, that is, the first one is the image of the lion that Nahum refers to in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young, where the lion and lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear? The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. Okay, this is that image of, of a lion out on a hunt and killing more than enough. And that's what Assyria had done. They had marched all over the known world, slaying, slaughtering. I mean, even down to the one scripture we read was, was killing the children um, in brutal murder, brutal attacks. Um, and, and so here Nahum is now saying, okay, now where's the lion? The one who, who had slain, who had killed so much uh, that everywhere he went, uh, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. Uh, so basically, he was, he was living off all the riches of all of the countries that they had, nations that they had overthrown. I don't think they're close. No, no. Um, Assyria is north uh, of Israel and west, more like up Iraq, Iran, that area um, is where these folks are from. And once they were overthrown by Babylon and Persia, or Persia and the Medes, they kind of ceased to exist um, at that point. So we have this image of the lion, and the lion was most often used to symbolize the nation of Assyria. Uh, Where we have the bald eagle, uh, they had the lion. Uh, That was kind of their mascot, if you will. Um, And what what Nahum is saying is the lion has done enough killing. Uh, God was now going to judge the lion and kill its cubs. Slay the Assyrians is what he was saying, um, that they would be no more. Ishtar is the lion, and this is the goddess of war uh, that we have. And so... Uh, Nahum is referring to this lion. We also have the image of the prostitute. Ishtar was not only the lion, she was also the image of the prostitute. In chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, it says, All because of the wanton lust of a harlot, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples 
by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Assyria was not well liked. And so they, they had basically prostituted themselves uh, through all the nations. They had overthrown the nations, um, bringing them in as slaves. Uh, we know that Israel, one of the things that Israel had done, we've talked about their worship, the way in which they perverted their worship was they had, had temple prostitutes. And this was just something they had learned from Assyria. Uh, as the Assyria came in. And so part of their worship was uh, with the harlots, with the prostitutes that were there, um, to the point that Hosea may have very well married. His wife became Gomer, became one of the temple prostitutes. Um, and so God is saying, uh, because that is detestable, I am about to make you very shameful in front of uh, the rest of the world. They're going to now look upon you. They're going to pelt you with filth. Uh, which is just refuse, garbage. Um, you know, you, you're going to be lying in ruins. And uh, <coughs> archaeology tells us that Nineveh was an incredibly beautiful city. Uh, with the waterways, everything was, I mean, the landscape, the, the architecture, everything was beautiful. And God says, I'm going I'm to level that, and you're going to be in ruins. There will be no beauty left. It will be filth. It will be shame. Um, desecration, um, you know, everything is going to come to ruin. And so Ishtar was the goddess of love, but it was not a pure or holy love. It was the lustful, sinful love of the prostitute, the harlot. Um, and that's what Assyria stood for. They stood for war, uh, killing, uh, enslaving, and uh, the adultery, the, the harlot. As the warrior and the harlot, she was going to be brought to shame. She would be paraded before the whole world, and the people would throw filth at her. Uh, basically, they were going to give back to her everything that, they, that Assyria had been dishing out um, was now going to come back to them. So the message, the message of, of Nahum, now that we kind of have the picture of what Nineveh was like, what Assyria was, um, you know, where they were at, what they were doing, uh, the message that Nahum brings to them is very bold, uh, for one, uh, and, and he really holds no punches, and there's really no good news in the midst of it. Uh, all the other prophets seem to bring some good news. Um, Nahum does not. Uh, there is no second chance for Nineveh. Um, the first thing that, that Nahum does throughout chapter 1 is he talks about universal judgment. That, that, that the whole world is going to be judged, Nineveh as well. He gets specific with, with Nineveh in, in chapters 2 and 3. But look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He says, The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at its presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The whole world and all who live in it. So there's going to be a universal judgment. 
uh, that the entire world is going to be judged. So, so Nahum not only is talking about the judgment of Nineveh, but he's looking way down the road to when the world, when God will judge the world. Um, and that is the, you know, at the second coming and the final judgment. Last week, we talked of God being a universalist, not in the wrong way that everyone eventually will be saved, but a universalist in the sense that he's not wanting any to perish, but everyone. He wants everyone to be saved. He, he's making chances, giving chances for everyone to, to be saved. Nahum now explains that along with that, he is a universalist when it comes to punishment as well. He wants all to be saved, but those that reject him, all will be punished. So he really divides the entire world population into two believer unbeliever. And that's where we're at today. There's only two classes of people, believer and unbeliever. Anything beyond that's man-made. And God says all of the believers will be saved. All of the unbelievers will be judged. Uh, will will be uh, judged for all eternity. Chapter 1, verse 2 says the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. Okay, this is a picture of God that a lot of people today have trouble with. What does it mean for God to be a jealous God? Because isn't jealousy a sin and something we're to avoid and not be? We're not to be jealous? How does God get away with it? Bill. He is jealous for us, not jealous of us. See, seldom are humans, you and I, ever jealous for something. We are usually jealous of something. God is not jealous of anything because he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all that. He is everything. And so when we under we have to understand that, that this actually reflects this idea of God being jealous and, and, and avenging reflects his deep love for mankind. That, as Bill said, he wants the best. Uh, we are the lost ones. You see, God, when, when Adam and Eve, he created Adam and Eve and he created them in his image. And when sin entered in, when they chose to disobey, they lost that. And now God is jealous of, of who has taken, not of, but jealous for us in that we have been taken away from him. We were his, his creation, uh, and now we have been stolen away. And so God is jealous to get us back. He, he's desiring to get us back. Where if, if I see that, that uh, Craig's got a new car, and man, that is a nice car, and I wish I had the, and, and I, I could be jealous of his new car. <laughs> and so, you see, but, but my jealousy is sin because I never had the car. God had, God is jealous for what he had and wants back. That is rightfully his.
Leben? Because Nineveh was believers, were they not? Yeah, it's about 120 years later. So, so somewhere there is a generation, we're probably about two generations removed from when Jonah came in. So if Jonah came in, and let's say the vast majority, probably not 100% of the people repented, but it does say Nineveh repented. So I'm going to say the vast majority, even if it might have been 100%, I don't know. But they never pass that word on to the next generation, uh, or at least not enough to where it got passed on to the next generation. And 120 years later, there are no believers in Nineveh. And so what God once had in Nineveh is gone. God had a place. God had believers in Nineveh, and now there are none. It is ne it's never been passed on, uh, passed down. Yes. Yeah, because that really is nice. <laughs> that's con that's convenient. Um, that we we do society tends to want to believe God is all-loving, and He is all-loving, but they believe that to the detriment of not believing He is just and holy. And His justice and holiness demands that sin be punished. And we tend to think that sin is going to be punished later, at the second coming. But what happens is God has the right to punish the sin of people whenever he chooses to do it. And sometimes he raises, he would raise up nations to punish Israel, which he did. He rose up Assyria. Assyria marched in, took the northern kingdom out. Now he's raising up the Babylonians and the, the Medes, the, Persian, the Persians and the Medes, to go in and wipe out Assyria because Assyria was not following after him. And so this, this jealousy of God is, is based on his love for us, his love for mankind, that he wants them back. Um, he's jealous for us because we have been taken away from him. We were robbed of his creation. So jealous is his divine desire to protect. We have to see it as that. The jealousy is his divine desire to protect what was his because he doesn't want harm to come to it. Okay, when we are jealous of something, we're jealous of something because we don't have it. Jealous for God, divine jealousy is to protect so that no harm comes to it. We are fine with, you know, if I'm jealous of Craig, I'm, I hope that car breaks down. That's jealousy. Uh, I hope it's a lemon, you know, because, man, I wanted it. And it kind of borders on covetousness, too, sometimes. Um, but with God, it is a protective characteristic, a protective attribute. So when he is jealous, he is protecting because he doesn't want harm to come to it. And so here we are. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes, those who are against him, his enemies, 
maintains his wrath against his enemy because he doesn't want harm to come to his people. Uh, and so he, he is jealous. Uh, human jealousy is a desire to keep or gain what is not ours and is born out of selfishness. Divine jealousy is the idea to protect what is ours, what, what is his uh, in that sense. Um, so universal judgment. God is going to judge, and his holiness and his justice demand. God would not be loving if he did not judge. Okay, we, as Bill said, sometimes we want to separate those. But God would not be a loving God if he did not judge wrongdoing. If he just allowed wrongdoing to go rampant, that's not loving. If I just let my kid do whatever he wants with no discipline, I never discipline him, I never train him, I never... I never punish him, and I just let him go. That's not love. That's pretty much ignoring. Borders on hate. Because I just let him, yeah, go do whatever you want. I don't care. Love cares. Love demands that there be punishment and, and justice uh, carried out. His holiness demands that as well. So, with the universal judgment that we read about in chapter 1, that it's, it's going to come, Nahum now turns in chapters 2 and 3, and he turns to the specific judgment on Nineveh. Chapter 2, verse 1, he's almost mocking uh, Nineveh. He says, an attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. Okay, I get a little sarcasm in that. Because he knows it's going to do you no good. Total destruction is coming. But Nineveh, go ahead. Guard the fortress. It's about to fall. Watch the road. Or at least watch the river. Brace yourselves. Marshal all your strength. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to be enough. Um, and then in chapter 3, verse 1, he, he goes again. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, uh, referring to Nineveh as the, as the bloody city. It, it lies, it plunders, it has victims, it, it leaves a wake of destruction. And now Nineveh is about to be that wake of destruction, that God's wrath is going to come through. It would seem that, that Nineveh is not given a second chance. You know, we always say that, you know, God always comes in and gives a second chance. Where's Nineveh's second chance? Jonah was the second chance, and they took it, and then they just didn't pass it on. There are still Assyrians, you're right. There is no more Nineveh, no more Assyrian nation. That homeland is gone. But as they took them captive, there would still be Assyrians in those areas wherever they were taken captive where the Medes and the Persians uh, took them. And so 
most of the most of the prophecies have some sort of optimistic outlook that they would return. Nineveh, not so much. Uh, it's not here. Uh, Jonah was Nineveh's second chance. It was about 120, 150 years prior uh, that Nineveh repented after Jonah's message, and now one to two generations later, judgment. They, they failed to pass it on. So grandkids, great-grandkids knew nothing of God. That grandma and grandpa never passed down, or maybe they passed down and then mom and dad cut it and didn't pass it down. Um, but somewhere in there, it, it's missing. Um, and so we also can see in here God's sovereignty in all of this that Israel was sinning and needed to be punished. The consequences of their sin was they too were going to lose their homeland, only they had it promised that someday they would return. God would bring them back to Israel, but for a time they would be taken captive, and so he rose up Assyria. And they stormed in, took Israel, and went back, and now he's raising up the Persians and the Medes to do the same thing to Assyria, only they were not going to get their land back the way Israel was. And so while Assyria was used earlier as an instrument of as an instrument of judgment, she was now facing judgment. That God's sovereignty just works in this way, uses nations, rises nations up, um, and gives them I mean, they gave Assyria the opportunity with Jonah, and they just didn't take it for very long. Uh, and to the point to where that generation then alive at this time uh, would be destroyed, and Nineveh would never again rise as a city. Uh, the only optimistic reference we have is Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. Look, there on the mountain, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. He is protecting Judah from what came in and wiped out Israel. And so he's giving a word to Judah. You will be protected. Yes. Yeah, Judah did fall eventually. And so this is pointing towards the New Testament, pointing towards the good news uh, to the gospel uh, that we have today. Now, there is some application. Uh, one is we need to examine our own lives in light of what Nahum uh, taught here. Here, Nineveh repented uh, under Jonah. They praised God, um, but they, won. They, they never passed that knowledge on. They never passed the truth down through successive generations, um, somewhere it got lost. And that's a big lesson to us, that it, it must never get lost. We must continue to make sure the next generation knows truth. And I can't tell you how confused the next generation is as to what is truth. And I mean the 30 and under bunch. They don't know. They can't explain. 
basic concepts of the gospel they question. I had a conversation with a man last yesterday. Not sure if hell is real. He's a believer. Has accepted Christ. And I said, I, I thought, why did you accept Christ? If hell's not real, what do you have to worry about? <laughs> Didn't believe that Satan is a real person. Until about six months ago when he came face to face with the fact that he is. In his own life. And that was the only explanation for the sin in his life. Is that there is a real entity a real person behind it all. And so now that he's come to an understanding that Satan is real, he's now struggling with maybe hell is real as well. But this is a gentleman that's been in church for quite a while, struggling with basic truth. The, the interpretation of Scripture, we, just the, the, the twist. Um, our small group is going through the, the video series of, by Andy Stanley called Twisted and how the, the devil has his schemes. And his scheme, his strategy is to just take the truth and twist it. That's all he wants to do. He's, he's not going to tell a bold-faced lie. He's just going to twist the truth, and make it believable so that we can get a little off track. And then another truth, a little twisted, a little to where now we don't know what we believe. And, and so it is so important for us to not only know the truth, be grounded in the truth, but to be passing that truth on, to have conversations with the next generation. I want to challenge you. There's not enough of you here because I want this challenge to be to a lot more people. <laughs> I want to challenge you to find somebody in the next generation, that 30 under, and pour yourself into them. Pour truth into them. Help them understand. I've got... I've got two guys that I'm meeting with right now. We meet every week, one on th in Thursday morning and one based on how the schedules fall. And we're just going through truth. The one, we have a book we're going through. The other one, he says, where do I need to start reading? I said, start in the Gospel of John. New believer. Uh, okay, I've got time, so I'm going to tell this story. Um, this is a gentleman whose life has been burnt by the church. Years ago, growing up, he, he just experienced, had a horrible experience with the church. And for years, wanted nothing to do with it. And just recently, he's had some health issues. And it has made him think. And it has brought him back 
Um, he's had contact with one of our members of the church here, and, and they said, you know, you need to go talk to Pastor Ted. Just go, go talk to him. Ask him your questions. Seek, you know, let him kind of explain where, where things are at. And so he called me. Actually, I called him because that guy came to me and said, you need to call this guy <laughs> in case he doesn't call you. So I called him, and we met for the first time. And, uh, and he asked. He said, this is where I'm at. I actually met him in the hospital uh, because before we were supposed to meet that morning, and he said they're admitting me for the problems he was, health problems he was having. Um, and so I met him in the hospital and talked with him a little bit. We set up a time for when he got out to meet, and he said, what do I need to be doing? I said, read Gospel of John. Start with the Gospel of John. So we were going to meet three or four days later. And I said, just write down any question that you have, anything. doesn't matter what it is. doesn't even have to relate to Gospel of John. But as you're reading, you just write down anything. We met that about three or four days after he got out of the hospital. And I said, well, what, what kind of questions? How far did you get? Oh, I'm done with John. What do I need to read next? And I went, well, this is refreshing. Read it all. I mean, straight through. And he had a list of questions. So we started going through those questions. He said, what do I need to read next? And I said, all right, let's go back. Let's read Matthew. Just start back at the first of the Gospels, Matthew, and we'll do that. I got a text from him about four days later. Done with Matthew, now what? Okay, I'm biting a big one here. Let's go to Romans. So I put him into Romans. And we met... Uh, he didn't get through Romans, but we met and we started talking about Matthew. And I said, I said, let me, let me ask you a question. I said, I'm going to go old school on you. If you were to die right now, let's say on your way home from, from my office, if you were to die, would you go to heaven? What do you think his answer was? Hope so. He said, I hope so. Yeah, yeah, I think I would. I said, okay, let's say you get there. And God says, why should I let you in? What are you going to tell him? Well, I'm, I'm a good guy. I said, how good is good enough? How good do you have to be? And then I just laid out the gospel for him, that good has nothing to do with it, that we are saved by grace, uh, by faith, and that Christ is, fulfilled everything we need. Christ was good enough. And so I, I explained the whole thing of Christ's righteousness on our account and our sins are what separate us from God. And, and Christ has come to bridge that gap. And I didn't draw the picture, but I used all the words. And, and, and I said, what do you think of that? I don't know. I said, you, you think about it. Think, think through that as you're reading Romans, especially the first few chapters. I want you to think about that. So he read Romans, and he came back. He said, let's meet again. So we met Thursday afternoon this last week. And he sat down, and we'd been talking, and he said, oh, he said, a few last time or time before that, you asked me a question. I said, yeah. You know, about if, if I were to die, would I go to heaven? I said, yeah, I remember. He said, ask me again. I said, okay. If you were to die, would you go to heaven? Yep. I said, how do you know? Because Jesus Christ died for my sins and he was buried and he was resurrected and his resurrection makes atonement for my sins so that I could be forgiven and I can go to heaven and live forever with God. I went, that's the answer I was looking for. 
And he said, Romans made sense to me. And, and it laid it out to where I could understand it. And he can't get enough of this. But, but why I tell you that story is the church messed up about 30 years ago when he was a kid. And God kept at him, God kept at him, God kept at him. And he's come back and, and now he's, he's here every Sunday, he and his wife and their son. And, and you know, he, just, he can't get enough of it. And so I, I he said, you know, I don't want to take up your time. I said, look, this is the time I want taken up. You know, I'd rather meet with you for an hour than fill out a report for Bob for an hour, okay? <laughs> and, and so I said, this, this is what it's about, is me meeting with you and you coming with questions and, and being able to just answer them and walk through and, and learn together. And I say the same to the other guy. And I had someone stop me this morning from that's in the starting point class, which she said, you know, I just feel this is a safe place to ask questions. And she asked a question that the leader didn't necessarily know the answer to. And so I was sitting there talking to the leader about the answer to the question when they walked up. And so I was able to just answer their question right there. And, and, and we need that. We need that going on to where each and every person has someone that they are discipling, that they are bringing along so that there's not a lost generation. Nineveh was a lost generation and God came in and wiped them out. We can't let that happen. We need to be passing it on. Bill. Right. Yeah. The church is to be about evangelism and discipleship. That's the Great Commission. Uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That's that connecting them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's the discipleship, that they know the truth. Um, and my fear is that we're, 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 we're losing that. We're losing that, that battle that discipleship battle uh, where we don't, we're not having a generation that's coming up knowing truth, rooted and grounded in truth uh, to where they can explain to their friends, where they can understand, they can know that they are saved. Uh, and, and we need to, and that's on us. I mean, this is where they're going to get it from. Okay, so the, the 30 and unders are going to get it from the 30 and overs. Anybody here under 30? Isaac in the back, our, our sound guy. <laughs> we have a responsibility to Isaac and those like him to be passing it on.
we're not, we're not, it's a, a almost a feel good. Uh, know God, feel good. Right. And, and it is a, it's a battle. We, we have lost some of the battle um, in that. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a feel good. And the second thing that we need to learn from, from Nineveh, from this book, uh, Prophecy of Nahum, is that there are consequences. I mean, that, that's something that, that, you know, there are consequences. You reap what you sow. And, and if you sow destruction, you're going to reap destruction. If you sow the sword, you're going to reap the sword. Um, and, and so the wrath of God is a terrible thing, and, and no one can withstand it. But for the one who has put their faith in God, it's actually a reason for joy. That there is going to come a day of cleansing. There's going to come a day when everything's going to be set right. And we need to be ready for that day. Uh, because it reminds us that there is a day coming when the wicked will be punished. When all of the wrong is going to be made right, when sin is going to be done away with, when the battle basically will be over. But until then, we're in a battle. And we need to live as warriors, as soldiers. Put on the full armor of God. Go into battle. Fight for the lives of the people next to us, of this next generation coming up. It is exciting to me that that our, our new men's ministry, 33 the series, is run by the next generation, the generation behind me. 30-somethings are the ones that have come together to raise this ministry up. And we have 40 to 50 men every Wednesday morning. Uh, it's 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, 40 to 50 that meet in the cafe, anywhere from 18 to I think the oldest one is 82. That are, that are there uh, to, to, to live it out, to learn it, to, to help one another, um, and, and to, to be men, to find out what it means to be a man of God. Uh, an authentic manhood is what we're talking about. And, and so there, there is rays of hope. I mean, there, there are those, but we need to be about it. Personally, we need to take that on. Personally, we need to be passing it on to the next generation. Just sitting down and talking, sharing. Do what I did. Read John, write down your questions. And let's get together and talk about it. It's as simple as that. That's the program. Read the scripture, ask the questions, seek out the answers. And then help live it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that it is so simple. Uh, that Father, your whole message is simple. Love God, love people. And sometimes we make it so difficult. And, and really, we, we just need to love people. Father, I pray that you would bring to mind those that we need to come alongside of. That, that we need to, in this next generation, that, that we need to be pouring truth into that we need to make sure they understand that they are walking on solid ground, that their belief is, is, is anchored in, in truth. 
not wishy-washy maybe. Father, would you bring to each of us those people, young people, maybe, maybe it's 40, 50-year-olds, I don't know, who you would have us just come alongside, read the scripture together, pray through it, seek your face, and grow so we might not be the lost generation. Father, your church would grow, your kingdom would grow in this land. But there would still be a voice. But we would still be the sent out ones from this place. Father, that your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Next week, Zephaniah. We only have two more that we're looking at. Zephaniah and Habakkuk or Habakkuk or Habakkuk or however you want to pronounce it. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.